Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Trium Connects, a new podcast for the Trium community. I mean, if you look at Tesla's pricing, there's a story, but it's a piece of a story, which is the electric car market is going to be huge and Tesla will have almost all of that market. That's a story. There's no testing of the story. Nobody even puts a number on it. They don't even, in fact, many people invest in Tesla. We ask them, well, how much revenue will Tesla need to have to justify the price? Their answer is, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 8 of Trium Connects. Please remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a review, subscribe, and or share us with your friends. Before we start with the specifics of this episode, I wanted to wish everybody a happy new year. I hope that it brings you joy, health, and prosperity. As we start the new year, it's hard for me to believe that it's been so long since, it seems so long anyway, since we started this podcast. We've now gone through eight different episodes, and my hope is that we will continue to do this not only to the end of the current crisis, but on an ongoing and continuous basis. So at the start of the new year, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening, and I really hope you continue to enjoy the conversations. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Oswath Demodoran. When sitting down to tape this introduction, I was faced with a real challenge. How do you go about introducing someone who is a true giant in their field? And I thought perhaps the best way to start is by using his own words, because they capture a fundamental humbleness and decency that I'm sure you'll hear in the podcast. He writes, quote, If you ask me to describe what I do, I am first and foremost a teacher not an academic, a professor, or an authority on any topic. This from a man who has published four of the most important books there are on equity valuation, two on corporate finance, two others on portfolio management, one on investment philosophies, a book on strategic risk-taking, and his newest book, Narrative and Numbers, The Value of Stories in Business, is proving to be one of the most influential he has written. So on top of being a teacher, I'm not sure if he can claim not to be an academic professor or an authority on any topic. That said, his dedication to teaching is legendary as well. Since joining NYU Stern School of Business in 1986, he has won their Excellence in Teaching Award nine different times, as well as picking up in 1990 the University-Wide Distinguished Teaching Award, as the youngest recipient ever. In 1994, Business Week listed him as one of the top 12 business professors in the United States, and in a poll that came out of MBA students in 2011, he was named the most popular business school professor in the entire country. In addition to all of those accomplishments, he is a regular guest on many business television shows, which have given him the name of the Dean of Evaluation, which is a title that is both accurate and well-earned. In this episode of Triumph Connects, we concentrate on his newest book, Narrative and Numbers. In the book, he lays out a five-step process of how you incorporate narrative into a company's valuation. Aswath and I discuss each of these steps during this episode. One of my favorite quotes from this book is the following, quote, stories without numbers are just fairy tales and numbers without stories to back them up are exercises in financial modeling, unquote. The conversation you're about to hear is simply an unpacking of this quote. Like all of Aswath's work, it is super well-researched, completely full of relevant and interesting examples, and I really hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I had recording it. And now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Aswath Demodoran. Aswath Demodoran, welcome to Trium Connects. Well, glad to be here. Now, you've been teaching in the Trium degree as long as I have, and that's really saying something. And you are by far one of the most popular professors we have. So you're also, I think, probably one of the busiest professors uh, that we have. So thank you very much for giving me the time today to join us in a conversation. I like to create the illusion that I'm busy, but I'm not, actually. (laughs) I don't believe you, actually. I I, I guess I believe the illusion. 
Now, you're the author of a number of absolutely wonderful books and super important books, but I have to tell you that your latest book is my favorite. Uh, I absolutely love this narrative and numbers book, The Value of Stories in Business. And I just think it's so rich. I mean, because it can be used by investors, entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, all to understand better the role of narrative in business across a kind of natural life cycle of the firm. It's just excellent work. So before we get started, I just wanted to kind of give you my admiration. Thank it's one you. of these books where I read and I go, ah, it's just so wonderful. I wish I would have written it. <laughs> uh, it was a book that I wrote to create a conversation, to start the conversation, because I think we've become essentially tribes, tribes of number crunchers who can't speak to storytellers and tribes of storytellers who look at disdain at number crunchers. And I think both groups lose as a consequence. In fact, um, my, my trigger for that book was actually a visit to Florence and uh, the Duomo in, in, in Florence. And, and everybody, everybody's been to Florence has seen the, the amazing dome. And, um, and, and the story of how an artist built this engineering marvel by teaching himself science and engine, you know, and I mean, what he basically needed. I mean, the, 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 the Renaissance men, or the Renaissance person was essentially somebody who could do multiple things, be in science, be, and we've lost that that Renaissance person. We're, we've become a world of specialists, and I think we've lost something in the process. Couldn't agree more. And um, there's a lot of interesting studies that show that the absolute most interesting and path-breaking work happens at the space between disciplines. Now, I think the the big picture people are rare now because in a sense, to be a specialist, you've got to spend all your time focusing on a particular topic. I mean, I'll give you a personal example from finance. In finance, increasingly people are not in finance, they're in options, they're in corporate finance, they're in market, they're in transactions because you've specialized. And uh, I am not a specialist. I, I've given, I mean, as a consequence, I will never know as much about any of those areas as the people in those areas. You know, I've, uh, you know, I, I am one of the few people who teaches corporate finance, evaluation, and investment philosophies, which spans the different divides in finance. But I do it with the acceptance that I will never know as much about any of these topics. But what I can bring to the conversation is a recognition of how these topics all connect together, how decisions that managers make are observed by investors who might be traders and how it plays out in different investment philosophies. And that gives me an advantage, at least on some aspects of finance. No doubt. From my own point of view, I study both psychology and economics. And mm -hmm. the danger, of course, is that whenever I was talking to one audience, about the other topic, uh, I would always kind of appear to be a naive interloper in a party of specialists. But again, it's that interdisciplinary work that seems to me always to have been most interesting. We're both kind of self-admitted quants guys that were convinced by the importance of narrative. And I came to the importance of narrative, again, just to reiterate a little bit, at through looking at how people perceive risk and uncertainty in decision-making. Mm -hmm. and how we tell them the story about that risk, how we describe the risk and how we describe the uncertainty has a big impact on what kind of risk profiles people are willing to adopt. Now, what led you to focus on narrative in the particular field of valuation? And did you see something in the numbers that you thought, ah, oh, something's missing here? It was very selfish. I mean, I started teaching valuation in 1986 and in 1992, I've faced an existential crisis. Sounds oh, bigger no. than it should oh, be. No. <laughs> and my crisis was that I could value just about anything, but I had no faith. Strange word to use. But the reason we do valuation is we need to be able to act on valuations. If you find something undervalued, you need to be able to buy it. If something is overvalued, you should sell it. And I discovered that while I could value just about anything, I did not have the faith to act on that valuation. Oh, so that's led to some soul searching. What is it that I'm missing? And what I realized was as long as I was just moving numbers around, I could move the numbers around to get any answer I wanted. So in my heart of hearts, I knew that while there was a value that I was attaching to a company, there was nothing beyond it than a collection of numbers. Hmm. So I said, how do I get faith in valuation? Something has to hold these numbers together 
rather than just equations and models, what is it? And that was the opening of the door to, hey, you need a story that connects these numbers and keeps them consistent. Because then when you change a number, you're changing your story and you have to defend that story change. So it made me more conscious of how without a story, numbers just for numbers, the valuation really carried no weight. And stories, which are the stories have nothing going behind them either. So I recognize that for a good valuation, you need to have a bridge between stories and numbers. And it was a long climb because I'm not a natural storyteller. I had to force myself to stop from going into an Excel spreadsheet and start valuing companies and start with the question of, What's my story for the company? And then go to the spreadsheet and use my number skills to convert that story into numbers and evaluation. So it was fate that drove me here. It's fascinating. I mean, I teach the intro quants course for Trium. And what struck me when I was reading your book is that in many ways we have, we've come to the same location from different paths. So what I teach the students is we all carry around inside of our heads implicit theories about how the world works. Mm -hmm. including about how our business works. And what we want to try to do is make those implicit theories, those implicit narratives explicit, because once you make them explicit, then you can question the assumptions, you can test the assumptions, you can test the numbers around them. Right. And if we don't have those internal theories or those internal stories, we don't know what to look at. Right. You know, we're just, we're just faced with a blizzard of data. Right. So like, why not look at variation in barometric pressure when we're trying to value a company because we know that that doesn't fit into any of our stories about why that should be there right so it seems to me that it's the narratives that are driving it that gives the meaning to these things but i i notice in the introduction of your book and, and this may be just me being uh kind of picking up something that that yeah. doesn't have much of meaning but you talk about the allure of stories and the power of numbers I just wondered why not kind of the power of stories and the lure of numbers? Because what I find is often people get kind of seduced by the numbers and right. pretend like they're telling the own story, but it's the power from the story that's driving anything. I just wonder if you see a difference between those two things. Well, I, the, what I mean by power of numbers is you can take numbers and push them to the end degree. The way I describe it is when in doubt and valuation, what number crunches do is add decimals because it adds to that. Hey, look how precise I am. Exactly. So what I mean by the power of numbers is people act like numbers are unbiased. Yeah. In fact, one of the things I do at the start of every year is I update data. I, I collect all publicly traded companies and I play money ball with the data, basically looking at what's going on across the world with publicly traded companies. And one of the points I emphasize when I put this data up and it's available for anybody to download on my website is don't fall for the pitch that numbers are somehow objective and stories are subjective. That's what I hear, speculative, it's subjective. I want something objective. And I give them the example of one of the data sets I report, which is I report average tax rates by sector paid by companies around the world. But I don't report one average because, as you know, with numbers, I can report a simple average, a weighted average, an aggregated average, a median. I report all of them. And I said, this is one of the most widely quoted data sets on my website, but it's quoted by people on both sides of the argument. People who believe that companies pay too little in taxes and too much in taxes. But what they do is they pick the number that best fits their bias and say, I told you so. And the point I'm trying to make is, if you're biased, you will find a way to use numbers to feed that bias. Numbers are not going to stop you from being biased. So I said, be open about your biases. Don't hide from them. We're human beings. We have preconceptions. We have biases. And we have to be open about them. Unfortunately, though, we're told that talking about bias is not allowed. If you look, for instance, the CFA, and you look at the charter, one of the things the CFA charter tells people is you have to be objective analysts. You cannot bring bias to the process. And I don't have a CFA, but I've given the keynote for the CFA phase every year for the last 25 years. And one of my keynotes was stop lying. Stop acting as if there's no bias, it's unhealthy. Because what it does is it then pushes the bias under the surface. It allows people to say, look, there's no bias. Look, it's all numbers. 
So what the storytelling forces you to do is be open about your biases. Say, look, you know, I, I love this company. I'm not going to hide that fact. And because I love this company, I'm telling a really big story. And because I'm telling a really big story, I'm putting in a high growth rate and high margins. But because your story is out there now, you are forced to tell the story. And in the process, as you're telling the story, you realize that this story doesn't quite gel. Something you don't realize when you're just plugging in numbers. So I think one of the reasons I push people to tell stories is they can be honest with themselves. Before you can be honest with others, you got to be honest with yourself. And I think that that's one of the reasons I think it's so critical that you connect the two. Couldn't agree more. Um, and that leads us kind of to the first step in your five-step kind of valuation plan that you go through with the book. And if you don't mind, uh, you know, I think it's the way mine works. I'm very kind of linear in my thinking. If, if we can go through these kind of steps one by one, I think it will help the listeners kind of get a good overview of the approach you take in the book. In fact, what I'll do is I'll use Airbnb as my example of, because I valued it recently. I'll use the five steps. So the first step in valuing a company is you've got to understand the company. I mean, you can't value a company if you don't know what it does. I mean, I, I give people a half-joking example. If you think Cisco makes vegetable oil, I don't care how good you are at the numbers, you're never going to value Cisco. So the first thing when I sat down to value Airbnb is I needed to understand what the company was, what it offered, why people like its products or dislike its products, who works in the ecosystem, the host, the guests. So in a sense, that's the first step in the process is talking to people, not collecting data, something we seem to have lost connection with because we have so much access to data. I still remember when I first valued Beyond Meat. Now, when it was soaring after its IPO, the first thing I did was I went to the grocery store and found a Beyond Meat product because I'd never eaten it. I needed to see what its product looked like and tasted before I could even start telling a story. So the first step in the process to tell the story, you got to understand the company, the competition, the market. And as you're telling the story, you're probably saying, but I could be wrong. That's okay. That's okay. Just tell the story for the moment because the second step in the process is a step where you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to stop and ask three questions about your story. Is it possible? Because let's face it, we sometimes tell fairy tales where the story looks great, but as you start to look at it, this can't happen. Is it plausible? Sounds like I'm playing on words, but I've raised the ante here by asking, is it plausible? So you've got to show me some evidence that somebody else has done something like this somewhere. And then is it probable? In which case I need to see something more tangible. Have you tried it in a particular town or a city? Show me something I can get my hands around. Is it possible, plausible, probable? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to uh, jump in there because you apply this spectrum to kind of possible and probable different types of investors to different types of firms on different kind of what step in this continuum. Can you walk us through how the type of investor or business changes as the narrative moves from possible to probable? I think of VCs investing in angel companies, which have just started as basically investing in possibilities that will become plausible. So okay. what they're hoping for is you invest in a hundred possible things, a dozen will become plausible. Then you have investors who invest in later stage private companies ahead of going public. They're investing in what's plausible. You don't need to show them proof. They're investing in total accessible market. Is there a potential market? And then you get to the market and you get to climb the ladder and the life cycle and become a more mature company. There are some investors who will not invest in anything that is not probable. 40 years ago, public market investors were almost entirely in the probable space. Because if it is possible or plausible, you let VCs play that game out. And until a company became probable, it did not go public. I mean, think of Apple, think of Microsoft. When they went public, they were established companies. They had a product, they had revenues, they had a market. So they had already made that leap into probable. You did not go public until you were probable. That was in the 1980s. Until the 1980s, that's the way public markets were. Right, okay. Then you got to the dot-com boom. And what companies discovered that you could go public as plausible companies. Ah, okay. So when investors, when public market investors first saw these older public market investors, they said, this is crazy. 
These companies have no value, a mistake, because they were applying the probability test to companies that were still plausible. Hmm. I'm not trying to justify the Zoom and dot-com booms, but I'm saying to rule all of those companies as worthless simply because they didn't meet your tests that you were applying in probable companies was a mistake. And there are still people out there who make that mistake, who look at an Airbnb and say, how can a company that's losing money be valuable? They're not being irrational. They're just applying the wrong test. So as you think about different kinds of investors, growth investors are more willing to invest in something that's more plausible as opposed to probable. But old time value investors want their cash on the ground. They want assets right. that they can see. And I think that's where the probable, plausible, possible will explain why you have that such different opinions about companies like Tesla, about Airbnb, across I, different can, investors. Yeah, can I just chip in there? It's, it's fascinating uh, kind of uh, way of looking at it. So, would you say that this is slid now to there is public companies that are only at the possible stage? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you could argue that companies like many of the electric car companies that went public last year, companies like Nikola. Nikola is, is really an idea still waiting to be born. It's not an electric truck company. So you have companies that are now jumping the queue and saying, look, there are public market investors who are willing to invest in companies like us. And that's not unhealthy. It just means we have to accept the fact that some of these companies will crash and burn because that's, it's not because they're frauds. It's because you're buying companies that are essentially options. If things happen, they could be worth a lot. Okay. And it changes the way we think about stocks. And it also changes the way we should think about things like, hey, what kind of risk premium should we demand for equities? What kind of portfolio should you have as an investor? Because the market has shifted under us. But let me just throw something to you because I'd love to get your opinion on this. So we know from psychology, for example, that the more detail we put on some possible future and the yeah. more detail that, that's consistent with our pre-existing beliefs about how the world works, the more detail, the more likely we think that the future is going to look like that. And yet by logic, we know that the more detail you put onto a future, the less likely it's going to look like that because it's just eliminating possible timelines, every piece of kind of detail you put on. And I'm just wondering if we create these compelling narratives, don't we alter our perception about how probable or plausible these companies can we be? Could. I'll jump to the fifth step because that to me is the step that keeps me honest, hmm. is once I've created a story, I convert that story into inputs. And this is, I think, the mechanical part of valuation. You give me any story about a company, my job is to take each part of your story and convert it to inputs, revenue growth, margins, every input in my valuation is tied to my story, which in turn feeds into evaluation. So by the time I get to step four, I have evaluation. I'm feeling very good about my valuation. Why? Because it's my story. Hmm. I picked the story. I believe the story. I love the story. I've come up with the value. And many people stop there. Or they hang out with people who think just like they do. So they pat each other on the back and tell each other how wonderful the story is. Yeah. Hey, you have VCs, you hang out with other VCs. Your founders, you hang out with other founders. Your banker, you hang out with other bankers. To me, the critical part of this process is step five, where I say keeping the feedback loop open. I tell people when you valued a business, show it to people who think least like you. Yeah. Don't pick finance people who will understand what a bait is and a cost of capitalist. If I'm valuing Airbnb, I'm going to find an Airbnb host who has been in Airbnb for a while, take them through the story, tell me what I'm missing. Yeah. Okay? And don't get defensive because to me, the key is to leave the door open because you're absolutely right. It's easy to convince yourself about a story because you come, come in with strong preconceptions. Yeah. I mean, the three most freeing words for me in valuation are, I was wrong. Hmm. Until you say that, you cannot revisit your story. You get locked into that story. Yeah. And I've said I was wrong multiple times on multiple companies. And to me, that's allowed me to reframe the story and tell a different story. So we're using story and narrative here. And how is a story and narrative different than just a clever description of what the company does? Is there a difference? Yeah, I think there is. A narrative is a business story. Whereas 
a clever story just picks something that the, the company does and presents it in a compelling way. A lot of founders do it, right? They take something, they do. Oh, look, we've got a great app. Look how many people download the app and everything gets focused on how neat the app is and how many people download it. That's not a business story. You need to tell me how those downloads will become revenues for you. Are you going to charge for advertising? Is there a subscription model? How did you pick which model to take? And if you haven't thought through that, this is not a business story yet. It's a neat idea. Lots of people like your idea, but it doesn't convert into a business. So to go from just a part of a story that's compelling to an entire story requires that you talk about building a business. Yeah. And the very best founders, in my view, do this well. I know Mark Zuckerberg is not exactly top on the list of people, that, <laughs> but the guy is an incredibly good business person. Mm. From the day he came up with the idea of Facebook at Harvard, he never thought about Facebook just as a social network to keep people happy. He thought about how do I make this into a business? Yeah. And whether you like him or not, everything Facebook has done has been built around the furtherance of a business, whether it's buying Instagram or buying WhatsApp. The contrast I would offer is Twitter, lots of neat ideas, but Jack Dorsey's never been able to put together a compelling narrative on how he plans to take these hundreds of millions of users that engage on his platform multiple times every day and convert it into a great business. And it's interesting because it is much smaller level. You know, we have this Triumph Capstone project, which is an entrepreneurial project, a, a startup, uh, or sometimes an internal uh, company project. But I find myself over and over telling people this same thing. What's your narrative? What's your story? And there's a disconnect between what I'm asking and what they come up with. And I, I can't agree with you more. Now, it's interesting because I recently read an article that you co-authored with Bradford Cornell on uh, ESG. Again, like almost everything you write, or I guess everything you write, it's fantastic. And this is called uh, Valuing ESG Good or Sounding Good. And you ultimately conclude that there's some evidence that bad companies are punished, but little or ambiguous evidence of a causal link between a firm's or fund's goodness. There's all kinds of problems measuring what the goodness of a company, but it's performance or value or price. And I just wondered, you said it does work in some cases, if the case is a small, privately held kind of niche company with an environmentally Patagonia. conscious I clientele. The Patagonias. Yeah, the Patagonias of the world. Yeah. yeah. But outside of these types of firm, do you therefore see these ESG stories, or I think you call them missionary stories in the book, do you see them as kind of stories without numbers and therefore kind of just fairy tales that are waiting to kind of the, fall apart? They're less stories than morality plays, right? I mean, that's basically my, my problem is, is there's a story you can tell for Patagonia that's a business story and there's a morality play. Now, the two have become interwoven in Patagonia because their morality play has become a big basis for people buying their products. So they tried to make that morality. So if that's the reason you're doing it, be honest about it. Then ESG is not about being good. It's, it's your marketing device. It's your way of creating a niche market with people like you. And that's always been the case. My problem with ESG is it promises good things for everybody. It tells companies, look, if you're good, you'll become a more valuable company. Then it turns to investors and say, hey, if you invest in good companies, you make higher returns. And then it turns to society and says, hey, if companies are good, you're going to gain. There's going to be a net gain to society. And nothing in business is good for everybody. So what I'm asking of ESG is more honesty in the process. And I'll give you an example. One of the arguments made by ESG is if you're a bad company, investors would sell you stock. If you're classified as bad, let's say you've, you know, we've come to a consensus on bad companies. The example for this is fossil fuel. Perhaps the part of ESG where there's the most consensus. You could probably get 80% of the world agreeing that climate change is real, oil is bad, we need to sell fossil fuel stocks. So starting about 10 years ago, investors started selling and getting rid of fossil fuel stocks. So you can go to fossil fuel companies, look, if you're bad, your investors are going to sell you, it's going to make it more difficult for you to raise equity. Because when you go out and issue shares, there are fewer people, with, which effectively means your cost of equity is higher. So you have to pay a higher cost to raise the equity. 
But the flip side of that argument is investors who then invest in those companies will earn higher returns rather than lower returns because they're now a smaller subset of the market. They're going after the same companies which have to offer higher returns to attract them. So that's a story where being bad is bad for the company, but for the investors invest in the company long-term, you actually earn higher returns. Hmm. Now we might not like that, but that's the reality of forcing investors to get rid of bad companies there'll always be a subset of investors who then benefit from investing in those companies. And the other thing is I'm also told that, you know, if you restrict your universe to good companies, you will make higher returns. And that to me makes absolutely no sense. And here's why. An unconstrained optimal will always deliver higher expected returns than a constrained optimal. Hmm. All I'm doing when I'm removing companies from my sample is I'm making my universe smaller. Yeah. If in fact, good companies earn higher returns, I shouldn't need to constrain. I should be able to find those good companies as undervalued and buying them. So my pushback is let's not make this sound like a good thing for everybody. There are going to be trade-offs. So some companies being good is going to help them. For some companies, it's going to do nothing. And for some companies, it'll actually hurt them. It'll actually make them less valuable. And you've got to be open about this because if you're not, people are going to get cynical. It's going to become a public relations game, just like corporate governance became a public relations game a decade ago. Hmm. And that was my original objective in writing the paper. And it's something I'll come back to over and over again. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found many of the arguments in the paper very convincing. I guess the one that I found, I guess I, I'd love to get your opinion about it. There's this argument that being a good company, again, in parentheses, because I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's kind of a risk mitigation strategy, long-term risk mitigation strategy. And I guess the only thing I would say is there's lack of clear evidence, because if we look at these as, as dealing with long-term risk, we don't really know yet because of the lag inherent in whether this strategy will pay off in the long term. Would you agree with that, that we, there's just not the evidence there yet because of the nature of the lag? No, I think that there, that argument works better if you're telling companies not to be bad. Yeah. So that's what I meant about the evidence is stronger for pushing companies not to be bad. Because if you're bad, you walk close to the line, you risk these catastrophes or disasters that can bring the company down. I give the example of Vale, yeah. the Brazilian mining company that built these dams in Brazil and ended up with thousands of people losing their lives because they cut corners on safety. That's the kind of disaster that can bring a company down. So if I were advising companies, I'd say, look, if you're looking at a project and there is this potential that you're walking close to the line, maybe you're better off not taking the project and taking something else. Yeah. So the don't be bad part is I think an easier sell. Now, if you ask me, should I be good? Being good is not going to protect you against those catastrophes. It's going to, it has to give you benefits in other ways because being good, you're going well beyond what is acceptable at companies. I'm going to do this, this, and this because it'll make me look good. Then you got to show me evidence that this is going to pay off in other ways. Is it going to show up, show up as higher revenue growth? I'm, I'm a value person. Where in my story is this helping me? Is this helping me keep employees working more long-term for me? Are they more yeah. loyal? In which case I should have lower costs. I think it'll make the ESG a much stronger concept if those links were examined and companies were pushed to be concrete about thinking how ESG pays off for them. Because right now we're giving them a free pass. We're saying just sound good. Yeah. Right. Right. Put the right things in your annual report. Put all those pictures in about how good you are as a company, and we're going to cut you a pass. And I don't think that's a good long-term way of delivering good companies, which we all agree is what we want companies to be. No, I, I largely agree. I guess the only thing that I would maybe push back a little bit on is where we draw the line between what is bad and not is, is changing. And it's not yeah. just, uh, let's say, a disaster like the, um, the holding tanks, but it could be being on the wrong side of a regulatory move. You know, And so when you say there's benefits from not skating close to that line. I guess I would only push back saying that line can be subjectively defined right. by the regulatory environment, which they find themselves in the political environment. But and the, so there's, there's a lot of variability and maybe- A good we, example of that is the privacy debate we're having, which, yeah. is, which is clearly shifted. 
right? From three years ago to now, you could argue that, you know, the question of whether social media companies, the privacy issues and the political, you know, issues that have come out of it are much stronger now. So, and that's, if you're an investor and you ask me, is there a way I can make money in ESG? Here's a strategy. Now get ahead of society in terms of what you think. So maybe what you do is you hire, I don't know, theologians or pre, you know, whoever you want to hire to do this, cultural you know, scientists. And uh, five or 10 years from now, what are going to be those lines in the sand that resemble what fossil fuels are now? Hmm. And there's going to be a transition because markets are not going to get there right away. So what you do is you get ahead of those shifts. And in fact, one of the pieces of ESG where the evidence is in favor of ESG is activist ESG investors who take positions in companies and then try to change them, change them on employment policy on. That is seems to be one of the few areas in ESG where investors are able to make money because what they're taking advantage of is they've gotten ahead of the game, they're pushing for change and then they make money off that change when it happens. So I, it's not all bad news in ESG. I think what I would push for is let's have a more open debate about ESG. Let's not shut down debates. Yeah. And to me, that, that's a troublesome thing is speaking out against ESG somehow is viewed as, hey, you're amoral, unethical. You basically, this, and I think we need to stop that. This is now in the business domain. The questions need to be debated openly which is let's talk about ESG, let's talk about what it costs. And let's ask, is this the most efficient way? If we want companies to be good, is this the most efficient way of delivering that end product? Because we all agree on the end product, is this the most efficient yeah. way of doing it? No, I absolutely agree. And I get very nervous when we have to rely on the morality of people that are unelected that uh, are unanswerable. So I like this idea that one thing you want to be is five or 10 years ahead because that makes smart business sense rather than you're trying to be a moral leader in society. And it seems to me that the argument where the place to where to make those arguments are in the public sphere um, outside of the business sphere. But as you said, it becomes an argument about uh, means to an end. As right. long as we all agree on the end, then we can talk most effectively about how to get there. So step one, create the narrative. Step two, you start to apply this kind of possible, plausible, probable test. Mm -hmm. Step three, then you convert these kind of narrative into drivers of value, as you said. Exactly. Now, you highlight the difference between drivers of price and drivers of value, which I think is a really useful distinction. I just wonder if, can you elaborate a little bit about how narrative plays a larger role, if I got this right in the book, a larger role in the drivers of value than in price? It plays a larger role in my world because I'm a value person. Okay. But it actually plays a different role in the pricing game. And let okay. me draw the contrast between value and price. We know what drives value. It's cash flows, growth, and risk. There's always been those three. How we get there, we might disagree. Whether we use a discounted cash flow model or not is kind of irrelevant, but value is driven by business fundamentals. Price is driven by demand and supply. It's driven by what other people are willing to pay for similar assets. Now, if we lived in an efficient market, then price and value will, you know, will, will be close or equal to each other. But in a world where Demand and supply can lead you to a number very different from cash flows, growth, and risk. You have two games going on, the pricing game and the value game. In the pricing game, stories play a different role. I mean, if you look at Tesla's pricing, there's a story, but it's a piece of a story, which is the electric car market is going to be huge, and Tesla will have almost all of that market. That's a story. There's no testing of the story. Nobody even puts a number on it. They don't even, in fact, many people invest in Tesla. We ask them, well, how much revenue will Tesla need to have to justify the price? Their answer is, I don't know, but it doesn't matter because it'll be big. Yeah. So when you look at pricing, the way stories play out, they skip the step three. They tell the story and they just go directly to the pricing. Therefore, I'll pay any price. And I think as a consequence, it plays out as momentum in markets. Okay. In fact, the other way to describe what happens in markets is if you take a story and replace with momentum, 
and um, numbers and replace them with fundamentals. Markets are always battles between momentum and fundamentals. And each needs the other. The people who believe in fundamentals need the momentum people because the momentum people create both opportunity and liquidity. If you didn't have momentum people, markets would dry up. If all of us were pure fundamentals people, there'd be very little trading and markets would not be able to exist. So the fundamentals people need the momentum people to keep markets going. And the momentum people need the fundamentals people to basically keep the game from going off the tracks. When you end up with an imbalance in markets, like right now, I think the momentum people have acquired an outlandish weight in the market. The fundamentals people start to give up and leave. And at some point, this is as old as markets. Momentum wins, fundamentals win, momentum wins, fundamentals win. So when people say this market's gone crazy, everybody, I said, look, you know, this is the way markets find their way back to a steady state. Each side needs the other. And without one, the other side is going to blow up. So to me, both value and pricing are driven by stories, but pricing stories tend to be much more pieces of stories than full stories because you don't need a full story. For instance, a very simple pricing story is you tell a, a story about how earnings will be higher next year. Then you say, right, I'm going to use the 30 times earnings pricing a PE ratio, and I'm going to come up with a price next year. You don't need a full story. You just need a very small part of a story to get you to a metric, hmm. which then gets multiplied to get to a pricing. Founders do this all the time. When VCs pay based upon number of users, guess what the founder story is going to be? It's going to be, hey, look, I can deliver 5 million users. Let me tell you the story about 5 million. They don't even have to go any further. Because yeah. the VC then multiplies the number of users by whatever they're paying, yeah. and you have a higher pricing for the company. So stories play out in different ways, both in pricing and value. But in my world, full stories translate intrinsic value, because that's how I drive my decision making. So what do you see that convinces you that we're on the kind of momentum end of the pendulum? And how close are we to the peak? Well, I think it's not a collective market problem. It's a subset of the market. I mean, I, I, I tell people we make this mistake of thinking of tech companies as this large group of companies that share a common characteristic. And in the 1980s, you'd have been okay classifying tech companies as young growth, risky companies. Today, tech companies are about 25% of the overall market. They are the biggest segment of the market. And if you look at tech and you, and you break it down, and I did this about six or seven years ago in a post, I broke tech companies down by age, by from founding date to And remember tech companies age in dog years. So a 20 year or 30 year tech companies like a 75 or 80 year old manufacturing company because everything gets speeded up. So I broke tech companies down by age into old tech companies, middle-aged tech companies and young tech companies. And then I looked at how the market was pricing and valuing companies within each group. You know what? The old tech companies are among the best value plays in the market right now. Hmm. It's not Kraft Heinz. You get, you know, if you take Apple, you strip out the $200 billion in cash they have. And you look at the multiplier you get on earnings, you're getting a much better deal than going out and buying 3M or one of the older value companies. Old tech looks okay to me. Young tech, the Pelotons, the Zooms, the Airbnbs, it's frothy, basically stories. All your, not even full stories, partial stories. Now, normally that's the way it always is, but right now what we have are the companies like Tesla, like Airbnb are, are getting to be a big enough part of the market where you're saying that young tech part could potentially be ready for a correction because it's become such a big part of the market. Now, not all of the companies are going to be punished and don't do anything crazy like selling short on these companies because that's a recipe for disaster because momentum can run you over faster than the fundamentals can come back. Hmm. But to me, the, the fact that so many high profile names are being justified by just partial stories and on top of that, you also have things like SPACs where you've got people setting up these special purpose entities where their objective is to take a company public in the future, but they haven't picked a company. Picked a company. Normally you say, why would I put my money with somebody who hasn't told me what they're going to buy? Yeah. 
but right now people are willing to do that. There seems to be enough greed in the market that people are willing to put their money into a, give th these companies get a blank check. And, and you so is this the right thing? So we started the conversation saying it used to be that only probable companies went public. Right. Is this kind of a necessary outcome of pushing that envelope back towards the possible? You're starting to get the equivalent of VC funds. That's basically what a SPAC is. Yeah. It's, it's a VC fund in public markets. Yeah. So by itself, it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing SPACs, but the amount of money going into these SPACs suggests to me that right now people are afraid of being left out. They've mm. seen how much money is made in the market. They want to be part of that train that collects them riches. And I think that um, in the process, they're throwing money at risk and hoping that they get to pay off. And that's a strategy that historically has always come with a correction. Mm. So the next step, so convert the narrative into drivers of value and then connect the drivers of value to yeah, evaluation. The, the drivers of value become a value. So once you get the drivers of value, it's mechanical. I mean, in fact, my yeah. Excel spreadsheet, you can put in revenue growth margins and what, what your reinvestment has to be. And it basically flows through and that's sure. evaluation. Yeah. And that's the part of the book that was the, the most kind of straightforward, I thought, that it, it's, yeah. it's plugging in the values and getting, and getting the valuation. And, th and then you come to this, uh, as feedback. you called it at the beginning of the conversation, the magic step, this, this feedback mm -hmm. loop open. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because much of the prescriptive advice you give there echoes a lot of the stuff that's given in the decision-making literature, particularly mm -hmm. behavioral strategy, when they're looking at trying how to improve strategic decisions. Right. By they say explicitly, you know, look, we need to keep alternative narratives open as long as possible and incorporate new information into your prior assumptions about your stories and only close off the alternative narratives late in the day. The practical challenge with doing that is let's say you work at a company where you work top down, the strategic choices are made up above it's very difficult to get alternative narratives started and alive because there's a degree of where a team, we need to push in one direction. And this is the strategic choice you made. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's easier said than done, especially in valuation. Because let's face it, most people, when they do valuation, they're not doing it because they're intellectually curious or because they want to get a sense of value. It's because they have a job. Hmm. You have to sell a company. So already the financial considerations kind of kick in in step five of, do I want to keep this door open or do I want to get the deal done? I am extremely lucky in the sense of I, almost every valuation that I do, I put on my blog and my blog has a very diverse readership. It's got founders, it's got VCs, it's got people who know nothing about investing. It's got people who are deep finance people, old time value investors. So the one thing I can almost guarantee is no matter what story I tell, people will dislike it. They will pick it apart. I mean, I used the Uber example precisely for that reason because it got picked up when I did my Uber valuation on my blog. It got picked up in four very different sites. The first was 538.com. For those of you not familiar with it, it's Nate Silver's. It's a yep. numbers geek site. Basically, it's statistics and math. The second place it got picked up was the Forbes blog. Exactly the same post and the same valuation for read by old-time value investors. The third place it got picked up there was, um, was TechCrunch, which is a classic Silicon Valley read by geeks and VCs. And the final place it got picked up was a site called The Ride Sharing Guy. It's actually a blog maintained by a person for Uber driver, Uber and Lyft drivers. There are enough of them that you can write a blog just for them. Right, okay. No, nothing about finance. Same post, four different forums. I get four very different sets of feedback. 538 people picked up the numbers, you know, why 12%, why not 11.97%? Yeah. The Forbes people loved it. They patted me on the back saying, you know, this is what those people in Silicon Valley should be doing. The TechCrunch people absolutely hated it, but they also told me things about the technology. They said, you're missing a networking effect. And I learned about how, you know, platforms can increase potential markets. And particularly in, within that side, one of the people who pushed back was Bill Gurley, who's you know well-known venture capitalist, you know, you know, one of the early investors in Uber on the Uber board of directors. At that time, perhaps closer to Travis Klacknick than any other person. And 
clearly he knows a lot more about Uber than I do. And he wrote a post that was, in fact, he emailed me right after he wrote the post saying, I wrote this post, I've said some mean things about you and I just wanted to let you know. And I went and read his post and I was fascinated. He took apart every part of my story and he pushed back. He said, Uber is not a car service company, it's a logistics company. He said, its benefits are not local networking benefits, they're global networking benefits. My initial reaction was defensive, but then I said, this is a fascinating story. In fact, now I offered to take Bill's story and say, oh, would you want to see the value that comes out of this story? And he said, absolutely. So I plugged in his story into my framework and said, this is what your value is. It's eight times higher than mine. But to me, that's the process by which I make my valuation better because I have a story, but I have a very, there are things about the world that I don't know about Airbnb, about Uber, about any company that I'm valuing. And in fact, one of the fascinating things was there was a, a driver in LA who wrote to me, an Uber driver in LA who wrote to me saying, now Uber goes around telling investors they keep 20% of the fare. But let me tell you what's happening in LA. They paid me $3,000 to switch from Lyft. And now Lyft is offering me 5,000 to switch back. And by the time this is all said and done, I would be surprised if they kept more than seven or 8% of the fare. And this was in 2013. And three years later, Uber comes out with its contribution margin in, in its biggest cities. And guess what it is? It's about seven to 8%. <laughs> so the guy was right. Yeah. So it's amazing what you can learn from people you don't think are qualified because this is about learning about aspects of the business. And there's always something you can learn hmm. from walking onto a shop floor and talking to a person who's working on the shop floor about a retail store that will improve your evaluation of the company. Yeah. So keep the door open to learning something new and altering your story. Because that to me is critical in getting this value to converge on a fairer estimate over time. Yeah, and it shows the, as you said before, the power of the numbers. So you have to be humble. And what's changing there, interestingly, isn't necessarily the figures you used, it's the narrative around it, which exactly. changes the valuation. And the changes in that narrative can come from, as you said, a, a talk with somebody on the shop floor, a chat with the driver, a chat with the founder. And I guess we just have to be humble enough to know that we can change those narratives and it still fits the existing data, but you come to a very different conclusion. Right. Um, so here's the thing that I, I worry about a little bit on that, because again, just I'm projecting from my own world. So if we look for risk, for example, we know that people or investors don't have a kind of static risk profile, which they can tap right. into to help to decide when they're facing risky choice. So it turns out that we construct risk profiles partially as the result of the way we're asked the question about risk. So the narrative forms the opinion. And because there's no true underlying risk profile, there's no kind of privileged way of telling the story. So in the medical field, for example, this comes to when we're asking people about informed consent. When we're describing the risks of a procedure, we know that how we describe those risks are gonna affect the person's choice about what procedure they want to have. Right. And so I, I just wonder if the same is true for narratives in business or more directly, how can we tell a good narrative from a kind of sophisticated manipulation? Um, there are a couple of things. One is I have an advantage over the doctor that I can bring into play. For a doctor being wrong on a patient, the risks of getting something wrong are catastrophic. Right. In investing, you're judged on your portfolio of stories. So the first thing to remember is, hey, you know what? I'm going to be wrong on every story that I tell. But as long as I try to minimize the bias yeah. across my portfolio, I don't need to be right on every story. I just need to be right on average. So it reduces my stress level when I think about risk as an investor. Hmm. It's a problem if you're a CEO, though, because you have everything riding on your story. So I think managers have a much bigger problem with this, which is one reason they tend to tell much more risk-averse stories. Ah, uh, interesting. Because for them, the consequences of being wrong are it's all or nothing. Because if you're wrong, you lose your job as a manager. Yeah. So investors, I think, can afford to be looser and more casual about their stories because they can afford to be wrong. 
And I think that's one reason I tell people, look, you know, don't be crazy if you're an investor, even if you love a company and you love its story, don't put all your money in that one company. Yeah, you're better yeah. off picking 15 or 20 companies where you like the story you tell about them and you can get them at a reasonable price. For many people, this is viewed as a sign of weakness because old-time value investors say, if you're, that, if you're that sure about an investment, how come you're not putting all your money? I'm never sure about an investment. Hmm. I need to spread my bets because I know I'm going to be wrong. It's, but what I look for are signs of bias because that will be devastating for yeah. me because if I do bias, then it cuts in the same direction. And I'm constantly re-examining the numbers saying, am I pushing things away because of confirmation bias? Yeah, yeah. Am I refusing? Because that can get me into trouble on my portfolio. So non-correlated biases, you're all right. But if they're correlated, that you're in trouble. Yeah. And it, and it's interesting that it really rings a bell. So I work with many firms and, and many, many firms are interested in creating innovative structures inside of their firm. So how do we right. come up with innovative ideas inside? And of course, the standard approach that we work with a lot of companies is saying, you know, you have to you manage a portfolio of small experiments right. and, you know, you invest often and kill lots of stuff and you look for the for the one that's going to survive and when we like talk a VC. yeah like a like an internal vc and when we yeah. talk to the people that are making the overall investment they are often relaxed by that approach but then if you go to the the the, the actual people that are doing that particular innovation that's everything for them right and they will make very risk adverse choices about that little idea right. because they're worried about being punished if it goes wrong Right. It replicates within firms as well as within VCs. And, and, and the so. more successful the firm has been historically, the more difficult it becomes for them to let this internal VC game play out. Hmm. And I, I give people the example of Google, one of the great companies of this, this century. And the, the big question has always been, how can a company this creative with this many smart people have so much trouble getting the rest. I mean, let's face it, 95% of Google's revenue still comes from that search box. Mm. All of this great stuff that they've done in this side, the rest of the alphabet. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, each product gets a lot of press, but it's never been able to get off the ground and become a solid money-making portion of the business. And that might answer the question of why do so many successful companies have difficulty kind of seeding and growing new businesses? It's because perhaps everybody's being measured against something that cannot be measured again. You will never have the margins that that search box did. Hmm. You will never be able to deliver the returns that that search box did, but that's okay. You don't have to, to be a successful business. And I think it's a, it's, it's a challenge because I think, you know, you see this with oil companies wanting to do green energy projects and they wonder how they, you know, how can they keep throwing money at green energy? And they never seem to be getting the benefits that a pure green energy company does. Hmm. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, I mean, I, it, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that more and more companies are facing, fighting and perhaps losing over. Yeah. Throughout the book, you talk about the kind of corporate life cycle. Mm -hmm and how different moments in the corporate life cycle uh, require different sorts of leadership, requires mm -hmm. different sorts of valuation, requires different sorts of stories. And, and that ties in a little bit with what you were just saying. And you argue that both the importance of the narrative and the leader decreases through the corporate life cycle. Okay. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that and why you think it's true? Because we could take what you said just before that as leaders of these companies, like let's say an oil and gas company, they have to see, you know, they have to have the perception that trying to do something new maybe isn't going to happen. Maybe Google, you know, wh why is it that the leader isn't important to shepherd the company through that transition in its later stage life? How can it be that they become less important? Because the story has been pretty much told already. So it becomes very difficult to alter your story. You're in chapter 33 of the book, then if you're chapter three of the book. Yeah. Because, and you know, I tell people just as you know, I take a public market investment. Who's the CEO of Coca-Cola? Most of them don't even know. Hmm. And the reality is, who the CEO of Coca-Cola matters very little at this stage. When I value Coca-Cola as a company, it's a company run by a management team. The story is pretty much written. Doesn't mean that there can't be a bad ending to a story if you do something really stupid. 
but this is a story that's been predominantly told. I care a lot more about who the CEO of Tesla and Airbnb are because they have the capacity to make or break this company. These companies are young and, and Tesla in particular, this is going to be an interesting transition. It's been a transition and going, which is, I mean, let's face it, Elon Musk has enough vision to fill a hundred CEOs. He is a perfect visionary CEO. And that was a big part of making Tesla the company that, that it's become now at $800 billion of market cap. The next test for Tesla will be, can they build the assembly lines to make not a million cars, but 10 million cars? You got to make the trains run on time. You got to care about logistics and supply chains. And I can't even imagine Elon Musk's chairing a supply chain meeting. Hmm. Now, can, can you imagine Elon Musk sitting there two hours? I, I don't see it. I, don't, I, I see him getting up and walking out of saying, this is boring. So one of the things I think Tesla could benefit from is what Apple did in 2000 when Steve Jobs came back, which is Steve Jobs. I, I'm old enough to remember Steve Jobs who just almost destroyed Apple, the company. Mm. I, own, I owned the Lisa when it came out. The worst, most, you know, impractical computer ever made. But I don't know. I, I bought a Next. <laughs> Do you remember and, Next? And, but, <laughs> Yeah, and the, those were computers that reflected his vision, but without anybody pushing back. Hmm. And what he did right the second time around, or what Apple did right, is they said, okay, Steve, you're in charge of vision. So you get up there in your black turtleneck, you tell the world what's coming, you can convince people. But you have a chief operating officer who will make sure that whatever you're promising gets delivered. And let's face it, Tim Cook is, it doesn't have a visionary bone in his body but he's an incredibly efficient deliverer of vision. And you've got to give Steve Jobs credit. He was willing to give up that power over operations and execution to Tim Cook and say, you do that, I'll take care of the vision. And I, you know, if I were advising Tesla, I'd say, look, you know, Elon loves to talk about the future. I mean, nobody can do it better. Let him keep doing that, whether he tweets it out or whether he does it some, some other way. But you need somebody to take care of operations. Somebody who takes, make sure the supply chain works, make sure that those 10 million cars will eventually get delivered. And if you can make that, then I, you know, then I think that this could be the next trillion dollar, next $2 trillion company. But that's going to be the test for these companies is can you make that transition where you have to go. And with, uh, with life cycle shortening, it's made this a more immediate issue because you never had to deal with this at a four because by the time they got through a stage in the life cycle, it took 30 or 40 years. The old CEO had become old enough to retire. Yeah. You never had to deal with this fact of the company's change. The CEO is not changing, right? It's a Yahoo problem where you went from birth to death over 20 years. Yeah. And if you think about the turmoil they faced at the top, it reflects the fact that the company was changing, but the management wasn't. And so do you see this replicated in small companies as well as big companies? And, yeah, and if, if so, what's the kind of average lifespan of a founder as a good company leader? Unless you're adaptable as a founder. And some, some, some founders are adaptable. They can make the transition from being visionaries to business people. You know, Bill Gates, he did that at Microsoft, right? He went from being a guy who wrote software to somebody who essentially, and it doesn't have to be you. It has to be somebody you're willing to delegate to. So what I think will happen is those founder CEOs are willing to kind of accept when they, they're not comfortable doing something and are willing to delegate the part to other people to do it are going to survive and be okay. But I'll predict there's gonna be a lot more activists investing and pushback against management going forward with one caveat, which is these young companies are fixing the game to make awesome. it more difficult. Oh, they're, they're, they're creating two classes of shares. Yeah. I mean, this used to be uncommon in the US until Google came along. Almost every young company that goes public, I mean, Airbnb has three classes of shares. Hmm. You know, one with you know, 10 votes, which of course the founders will own, one with one vote, which you and I bought, and one with no votes that they've held in abeyance just in case they want to insult you even further by saying, I want your money, but I don't want your input. 
Yeah. So by fixing the game, they're essentially creating the potential that some of these companies could be on pathways to disaster because the founder CEO is taking them on that road, but nothing can stop them. Yeah. And that's the G of ESG, of course, that that's back to what constitute good governance for the investors right. versus the founders. Yeah. Well, listen, the time has flown by. I've taken up the time that I promised that I would keep you on. I, I want to end up with just one uh, question, which we ask all of the guests that come along. Um, can you share with us a book or a movie or a TV show that you've enjoyed since the start of the pandemic that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be fiction, nonfiction, serious, non-serious, any, anything. Yeah. I mean, I watch Chernobyl on HBO. I mean, it's, a, it's not exactly an uplifting show, but it's a show of how when mistakes get made, the temptation is to cover the mistakes and make those small mistakes into bigger mistakes. I mean, and, and as I watched Chernobyl, I mean, and I looked at the consequences of levels of bureaucrats all trying to be risk averse and protect themselves. I, I'm, I'm reminded that this happens in businesses all the time, not to the level of devastation you saw in Chernobyl, but small mistakes eventually become really big mistakes because nobody wants to step in and stop the train once it's moving. So I, I, it's, as I said, don't watch it if you're depressed or not in a good mood. It will not put you in a good mood, but it's actually an extraordinarily well-made well show. No, I, I agree. And uh, it's, it's interesting now I'll have in my mind this little vision of tiny little Chernobyls happening in the business world um, yeah. all over the place. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been a delight. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. <laughs>